<laughs> uh, that was awesome. Uh, good morning, everybody. This is fun. There's not usually... Um, my name is Steve. I'm the lead pastor here at Discovery. And thanks for joining us uh, today as we wrap up our Advent uh, season. It's been great to move through this together. Thank you, Craig and Charlotte, for doing a great job uh, this morning. And for all the rest of you who have been a part of that, um, it's been really special to have that moment here on Sunday morning, but also to hear stories of, of the different ways that families and individuals are celebrating and thinking about the Advent season in preparation for Christmas this year. That's been really cool. Uh, today we also uh, wrap up a section in our journey through Matthew. So by the way, if you need a Bible, raise your hand. Someone will come around and make sure that you have one. Um, but as we come in for a landing here before uh, Christmas and Christmas Eve service tomorrow and uh, a week off here at the end of the year, I just want to say a couple things about our Matthew series. We're going through this uh, 40 weeks in Matthew over the next uh, several months. Um, but today is the end of the first section of the Gospel of Matthew. And so when we get back together in January, we'll be getting a new section. We're doing this in, in sort of several series within the series. And so we'll talk more about uh, what all that looks like as we move forward. But just want to note, today as we wrap up Advent, also wrap up this section in Matthew. So if you have a Bible, open to Matthew chapter 4. And again, if you need one, raise your hand and someone will make sure you have one of those. And as you're looking for Matthew chapter 4, let's start with this. There is a common recurring dream that many people have, maybe you are one of these people, that has to do with school. And maybe you're in school and so this dream comes up or you, uh, you, it kind of takes you back to a, a different era in your life. But this is that dream where you have a test and, and you don't know where the room is or you are in the wrong room and you realize, you know, as the class is beginning, oh, shoot, I'm in the wrong place. Or you get to your test and you don't have the materials that you need. You need a pencil because it's a Scantron test and you only have a pen or whatever. We have these recurring dreams around what I would call test anxiety. Anybody know what I'm talking about? Okay, <laughs> there's one right there. I had a real-life experience of this dream at one point when I was in college. I was taking biology, and uh, I stayed up all night studying for a test. And the way that this class worked is it was one of those classes where you have four or five tests. I don't remember exactly what it is, but you get to drop the lowest score. And so we had already had two exams, and I had done fairly okay on them, but I thought if I do really well on this third test, then I can just sort of slack off for the rest of the semester and not have to worry about it because I'll just drop whatever my lowest score is. So I stayed up all night. Uh, studying for this test, getting prepared for it. And then I think I laid down at like 6 o'clock in the morning. I thought, I'll just take like, you know, a 20, 30-minute power nap, get back up, review my stuff, and then I'll go take the test. The class was at 8 o'clock. So I lay down, and I open my eyes, and it's 8.30 in the morning. And I, I have that like just uh, instant surge of adrenaline, total panic, uh, throw on some clothes, start sprinting across campus because, of course, the biology class is like the farthest class away from where I was living. And, and as I'm making that run, I'm having all those thoughts of like, you're going to fail. You, you'll, you're going to be kicked out of school. You'll be in Santa Cruz playing your guitar on the street, busking for money. Like all these like catastrophizing thoughts just start rushing to you in that moment, right? So I get there. At about 8.40, I have 20 minutes to take this test. I just blast through it. 
And of course, it ended up being the highest score that I got that semester, right? How does that work? It still kind of makes me mad for a variety of reasons. Now, we start here. I bring this up because I think that we have a lot of baggage around the idea of tests. And particularly in the world of education, we don't like it when our teachers teach to the test. Uh, we understand these days that there's all sorts of, of problematic things around the idea of testing. And yet, at the same time, if we're being honest, testing at some level we know is good, right? It helps us know where we stand. It gives us a goal to shoot for. It helps us know if we've accomplished something. We also want to know that other people have passed tests, right? You want your doctor to, you want to know that your doctor was able to pass the tests that they needed to pass to get that degree as they care for you. And then on top of all that, there's this idea of testing something out. Sometimes the test isn't definitive in the sense of pass or fail. It's more about reconnaissance, right? So we have test drives. We test things out. We do test runs to try to learn more about a particular thing. So we have this sort of uh, weird relationship with the idea of testing. And, and I have to admit that at some level I appreciate these tests, especially against the ones that help me know, oh, this car that I'm driving is actually safe because it passed the test. And yet I really struggle with the idea of spiritual testing, with this idea that God would test us. And yet in Scripture there is this repeated pattern of testing. Just a couple of examples. Adam is given paradise. Adam and Eve given paradise and yet told, do not eat from this tree. Abraham and Sarah barren for most of their lives, unable to have children. And then they're miraculously given this son that they named Isaac. And then they're asked to sacrifice him. God's chosen people, the Israelites, lived in slavery for 400 years. They are miraculously freed from this slavery. And then they're tested in the desert. So the pattern is there's a good gift. And then there's a test. And I, I kind of struggle with that. Because it's like, God, what are you doing? It's sort of mean, right? Good gift and then a test. That struggle, I think, reveals a lot of things about us. For me in particular, I think it reveals that I have been discipled. I have been formed by our culture in, in that we receive this message where if something is hard, if something causes me to suffer, if something is challenging, it must be bad. The highest form of morality in our culture is our own personal happiness. And so if there's something that messes with our own personal happiness, it must be wrong. It must be bad. If I'm faced with a test, a trial, or a difficult season, something must be off. And yet scripture shows no. Sometimes these seasons of testing are a gift. And inside of that gift, this promise that God is with us in those tests and this promise that Jesus himself has been through a test. So Matthew chapter 4 is where we begin. This is sort of an odd Advent passage. But as we continue on here in Matthew, this is where we are. And I think you'll see a lot of connections to this Advent theme of love. Matthew 4 verse 1 it begins like this, Jesus was led by the Spirit 
into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. There's a lot of stuff going on in just this first verse. In your Bibles, most of your Bibles, there will be a note there that says something to the effect of test or tempt is the same word in the Greek as the word test. And I'm going to use those two words interchangeably as we move our way forward here. But here again, that repeated pattern, Jesus is coming off of a very significant moment. If you were with us last Sunday, this is where we were at the end of of Matthew chapter 3. We saw Jesus' baptism, and we talked a lot about how all of these events that lead to his arrival, it all appears to be so wrong, so upside down. We even went so far as to name it a fiasco for the Messiah, this long-awaited Savior and King, to come in such an insignificant way, to grow up in such an insignificant town, for his coronation as King to occur in this ritual of baptism that was reserved for Gentile conversion and for sinners who needed to repent. It just, again, is so upside down, seems so wrong. And yet, it turns out to be this high point moment for Jesus. In fact, in his own words, it's a moment that fulfills all righteousness. As God speaks over him these words of affirmation, This is my son whom I love. With him I am pleased. This moment is righteous because Jesus is doing exactly what needed to be done to identify fully with humanity and also to save us from our sins, his mission and purpose that we're told about in Matthew chapter 1. Matthew leads us to this moment to say the king is here, this long-awaited Messiah, Savior, King has come. So the expectation at this point would have been then for Jesus to take his throne, start exerting his authority and ruling his kingdom, which geographically would have meant that Jesus would head to Jerusalem, the center of the action, where the temple is. But here we see Jesus goes into the wilderness. In fact, he's led into the wilderness by the Spirit. This is not some sort of accidental wrong turn that Jesus makes. God leads him to the wilderness. Which again, going back to the conversation we had last Sunday, we saw the wilderness not a good place. What was perceived as being very dangerous, perceived as being far from God's presence. It was a place removed from the action, a place where bad things happened. So on the one hand, this seemed very surprising that Jesus would head in that direction. The king is here. He should be going to Jerusalem. Instead, he's led to the wilderness. Where it is not surprising, he is tested, tempted, and he has this encounter with his ancient enemy, the devil, Satan, the deceiver, the accuser. A lot of different things going on in this testing scene. And what I want to do is we're going to focus on this scene And we're just going to keep changing the angle of the camera. Look at it from a couple of different uh, ways. The first of which is the angle of time. There's an issue of time here in this scene. Verse 2 tells us Jesus was out in the wilderness for 40 days. And there's a couple of uh, significant things about this. One, on a very basic level, it says that Jesus was fasting during these 40 days. So he's gone 40 days without Food. Last time I checked, that's a long time to go without eating. I get a little bit hangry in the afternoon if I haven't had a snack. Jesus hasn't eaten for almost six 
weeks. It's interesting that Satan waits until the end of this period to show up and begin throwing these tests at Jesus. Kind of a low blow move, right? Second, these 40 days in the wilderness are significant because they would have reminded Matthew's Jewish audience. He's writing to this primarily Jewish audience, and immediately they would have thought about the 40 years that Israel spent in the wilderness. Remember, we just talked about how they had been in slavery in Egypt for 400 years. They're saved in this exodus moment. God uses the leadership of a guy named Moses to bring them out of slavery. And after receiving this good gift of their freedom, they are then tested in the wilderness. They fail that test, and they end up having to wander for 40 years before they finally get to move into the land that God had promised them. So they would have heard echoes of this story in Jesus being in the wilderness for 40 days. Matthew being very intentional here. Much of what Jesus is about to do, all the things that he's going to accomplish from this point out are things that Israel could not do. And if we're being honest, they're things that we could not do either. Adam and Eve failed the test in the garden. Israel failed the test in the wilderness. We come up short all the time. Now here is Jesus facing this test. Matthew has been painstakingly showing us, revealing to us Jesus' humanity. All throughout these first three chapters, there's been numerous ways in which he's been reminding us Jesus was fully human. But he also does not want us to miss the ways that Jesus does what we cannot do for ourselves. So part of this time angle is reminding us that Jesus is going to be able to do what we could never do. Now, there's the issue of time, then there's the issue or the angle of geography. And I want us to follow the geographical progression as we move through each of the temptations or each of the tests that he faces. The scene keeps shifting. It begins in the wilderness, in the desert, where Satan comes and says, if you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. So the first test is a direct attack on Jesus' immediate needs and his weakness. Now, it might be weird to think of Jesus as being weak, but again, fully human, 40 days without food, the dude is hungry. Turn these stones into bread. So Satan is attacking this real visceral need, but there is a deeper thing going on here. Amy and I talk a lot about... um, in our just conversations, especially around conflict, we talk a lot about the thing behind the thing. And especially when we're misunderstanding or miscommunicating each other, there's, there's sometimes a presenting issue. Why are you late? Why didn't you call? Why did you use that tone of voice with me? But almost always, there is a thing behind the thing. It's not just about being late. It's about values and priorities and communicating care and concern. It's not just about the tone of voice that was used. It was about all the other frustrations of the day leaking into that particular moment. There's a thing behind the thing. Are you with me? Now, the thing behind the thing in these temptations is Jesus's identity. Satan is going to go after hunger, 
and power and authority. He's going to try to undermine relationship and mission and worship. But underneath all of that is this question of Jesus' identity. Are you really the Messiah? Is God really actually pleased with you? Are you really beloved son? And in these questions, there are echoes of Genesis chapter 3. When Satan comes to Adam and Eve, he says, did God really say? Undermining trust, undermining identity. Now Jesus will respond here and, and in the subsequent tests with uh, words from the Old Testament. And the Old Testament book of Deuteronomy, and in particular chapters 6 through 8 of the book of Deuteronomy. And this is really interesting because this book comes out of that season that of testing, of being in the wilderness that Israel had gone through. So because they fail the test, the whole generation has to die out. That's why they spent 40 years in the wilderness. And uh, this includes even the leadership of Moses. Moses will not get to enter into the promised land with the next generation. And so his parting words, his parting sermon to his people is recorded for us in the book of Deuteronomy. And it's from these words that Jesus quotes and comes back at Satan in his temptations and testing. He says here, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. And, and part of the, the application here that's often uh, gone to directly is it's so important to know and memorize scripture. And there's a lot of truth to that. Memorizing scripture, knowing scripture, an incredibly important spiritual practice. But I want us to see that Jesus is not just smart. He's not just uh, able to recite passages off the top of his head. He understands the bigger picture, the bigger story of salvation that is at stake here. This isn't just a test of what Jesus knows in his, he in his head. This is a test of, of the purpose and mission of God. The redemption of all things is at stake. Again, this is why the baptism scene is so central to what happens to Jesus in his encounter with Satan. His father has told him who he is, has affirmed him, has grounded him in an identity before any of this happens. And so Jesus is free. He does not need to prove himself in any way. And he passes the test here, not because he could recite Scripture so well, but because the Scripture that he recites reveals how grounded his identity and secure his relationship with his Father really are. Now watch this. As the geography shifts, Satan takes Jesus from the wilderness to Jerusalem next. Now they are at the center of the action. They go to the temple, and not just to the temple, but the highest point of the temple. And here Satan continues to undermine Jesus' identity. This time, rather than going after physical needs, he goes after Jesus' vocation, his mission. Throw yourself off this high place. Do something spectacular. Draw attention to yourself. Get the crowds all worked up about how magical and awesome and powerful you are. And again, Jesus responds with Scripture from Deuteronomy. It's also written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. Once again, Jesus gets to the thing behind the thing, saying, I know my mission and purpose, and there will be no shortcuts. 
This is not about a big show. This is going to be done on the timing that my father and I have said. This is going to be done on our terms. Then this, the scene shifts one more time. Now they're on a mountain. And Satan says, you can have all of this if you worship me. He goes for it one last time, undermining identity, offering a shortcut, attempting to, to drive a wedge in that relationship between Jesus and the Father. And again, Jesus passes. Using scripture, he identifies the deeper issue. There will be no idols. There will be no misdirected worship here. Now, I want to pause the narrative for a moment and go after a couple of applications for us. Again, I think the classic application of this text is memorize scriptures so that you can say those scriptures when you are faced with the temptation. And I would say that that is a good spiritual practice. But I want us to go even a level deeper than that because all temptation is about undermining our identity by questioning God's relational intentions, distracting us from our true mission, and attempting to break trust or undermine our worship of God. So I want to give us a couple of questions that we should be asking when we face a season of testing or when we're facing a particular temptation. The first question is this, what is it about this thing that offers me a sense of identity? What am I potentially substituting for who God says that I am. Now, for each one of us, there may be a million different ways that this can go. And so I'm just going to name a couple of things as we move through each of these questions. But I think here, especially in a place like Davis, there is a significant test of our identity around what we do. Our work, our research, our studies, our parenting, our hobbies, whatever it may be, we are constantly tempted to go to those things for affirmation. For that deep sense that I am okay, that people need me, that people want me. But as Jesus says, men and women do not live on bread alone. And so work is a good gift. It is a God-given gift, but it is not our fundamental identity. What is it about this thing that is asking me to substitute something for the identity that God speaks over us? Second question, how does this thing distract me from God's mission, from making disciples, sharing our good news with other people? Am I losing the plot by getting caught up in this behavior or thought process? And for most of us, we're not going to be tempted to throw ourselves off of a high place, or at least I hope that that's not a temptation for any of us. But this, the root of the issue is the same, right? Will we pursue our agenda or God's mission? Again, so many different ways that this can show up in our lives. For, for me, at least in the experience that I have had, I've seen that it manifests itself most in complaining and in getting really caught up in a pet project. When our conversations with people are more about us venting or when we're consumed by our little team, our little project, our little group, we tend to be getting very distracted from the bigger mission the bigger things that God has in mind. So what is it about this thing that is distracting me from God's mission? And then finally, how does this thing break relational trust with God? What am I being asked to bow down to? What am I allowing to have power over me? What 
is wanting me to worship it? These questions, I think, are particularly acute in our relationships with people. We need people, of course. We need to be in community with others. But sometimes we have a tendency to bow down and worship the approval or the opinions of others. So when facing a test, when facing a temptation, run it through the grid of these questions. How does this thing question my identity? How does this thing distract me from God's mission? How does this thing uh, break relational trust with God? Get down to the root of it. Name the thing behind the thing. Now, one more angle to look through uh, at Jesus' testing. I want you to notice how Satan keeps inviting Jesus up. They start in the desert, and then they move to that high place in the temple, and then they move to this high mountain. Satan keeps inviting Jesus up and up and up. Matthew, though, for the last several chapters, has been taking us down, down from heaven to earth, down into the manger, down into the mess and violence of our world, down into the waters of baptism. But for Jesus, the way up is down. And this theme is going to be repeated over and over again throughout Matthew. The way up is always down. And I think here's another question for us when we are facing testing, when we are facing temptation. Am I trying to escape? Am I trying to get up out of this thing, whatever it might be? Or am I willing to deal with it honestly by getting down into it? Again, for Jesus, the way up is always down. And then the last thing that we need to say here, and this is sort of obvious, but again, I think it's just worth naming out loud. Jesus passes the test. He goes to the wilderness. He faces the accuser. He comes out on the other side with his identity secure, with his mission prioritized, his relationship with the Father intact. And in doing so, he does what none of us could do. Hebrews chapter 2, he shared in their humanity so that by his death he might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. For this reason he had to be made like them, fully human in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God, and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. Because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he is able to to help those who are being tempted. This is so important for us as we make our way through the rest of Matthew. Everything that Jesus does from this point on, everything he teaches, everything he models, everything he accomplishes, it comes from a place of deep integrity having passed through this test. Now when we talk about integrity, we we oftentimes talk about moral character. And maybe you are familiar with the definition or you've heard the definition of integrity as who you are when people aren't looking, right? This idea that the private you is is the same as who you present in public. I think there's a lot of that that's at play in this temptation scene, but I want us to think about integrity from a slightly different angle for a moment. When we lived in in Boston, we lived in the middle of this street uh, on either corner was a fairly major street. So we'd have to walk from the middle of our street to the bus stop uh, down at the end. 
um, to get downtown or wherever we wanted to go. And there was a, a house right in front of the bus stop that, it, you know, just, it was one of those houses where, like, the yard was never taken care of and, and they just kind of looked a little bit run down. And then in the winter, it became extremely aggravating because no one uh, shoveled the sidewalk. And so what happens is it snows and then people walk all over this and it turns into ice and it becomes very treacherous and you like take your life into your own hands as you're walking to the bus stop and, and cursing the people that live in the house. Turns out that no one was living in the house, which is why no one was shoveling the snow. And so that spring, I'm walking to the bus stop one day and I notice the whole thing has been boarded up and there's this big sign on the front door that says, Condemned. Now, legally, a condemned building is a structure that is deemed dangerous or unfit for human habitation due to a long list of reasons. <laughs> In other words, that house was no longer safe to inhabit. It had lost its structural integrity. Here is why testing is so important. Here's why testing can be a good gift for us. When we lose structural integrity, we become unsafe. When we find our identity in something else, something other than what God speaks over us, when we trade God's mission for our mission, when we worship safety and security instead of the creator of the universe, we lose that structural integrity. We become unsafe. When Jesus passes through this testing, he is demonstrating that he can hold up under the load, the stress, the weight of taking on the sins of the world. Now again, we're never going to be able to do what Jesus does, but Jesus does invite us into this kind of life, a life where we can have that kind of structural integrity, an abundant life, to use his words from John chapter 10. But the truth is, an abundant life will always come with a significant amount of testing. And again, back to where we started, this is so countercultural because everything in our world is geared towards our comfort. We are all about avoiding hard things. There's a great line in the movie, A League of Their Own. This movie, over 20 years old now, believe it or not. Uh, stars Tom Hanks as a guy named Jimmy Dugan. This is about uh, an era of history during World War II when a women's baseball league was started. He's sort of a washed-up, drunk, uh, ex-Major League Baseball player who's asked to manage one of these teams. And there's a, a particular scene where he is, uh, his star player has quit on him, and he goes to talk to her to try to convince her to come back to the team, and they're having this back and forth about why she's leaving, and, and she tells him she just can't do it anymore. It's too hard. And he says, it's supposed to be hard. If it wasn't hard, everybody would do it. The hard is what makes it great. The hard is what makes it great. The hard, when moved through faithfully and honestly with the one who has passed every test, it will produce a structurally sound, abundant life that is safe for other people, that is a blessing to other people. Now many of us, we've been through things that are hard, right? This church has been through some hard stuff. Our family has been through some hard 
stuff. And I think the tendency, again, because we are so discipled by our culture, is to think that these negative moments, these are toxic moments. God's not here. God's not with us in these seasons of hard things. And so what we do is we move towards our comfort. We move towards safety. We equate our happiness with blessing. And then we wonder, where's the abundance? Where's this abundant life that Jesus is talking about? I don't see it. The abundant life is found in the hard. The hard is what makes it great. I want us to end this morning in kind of a strange place. We're supposed to go all the way through verse 22, but we're going to end in verse 12, where it says that Jesus, after this, having passed the test, withdraws to Galilee. And it's from there that he starts teaching, that he starts inviting people to join his team. But I don't want us to miss the significance of where he is geographically. Galilee. Commentator Dale Bruner writes, Galilee is a strange place for a Messiah to work. Galilee was not just geographically far from Jerusalem, it was considered spiritually and politically far too. Galilee was the most pagan of the Jewish provinces. Galileans were considered by Judeans to sit rather loosely to the law, to be less biblically pure than those in or near Jerusalem. Finally, Galilee was notorious for being the nest of revolutionary moments. Therefore, when Jesus retreated into Galilee, he did more than head north. He seemed to go wrong. And here again, we have the surprising, unexpected action of Jesus doing the, the thing that, that no one would have anticipated the Messiah should be doing. It goes to Galilee. Seems to go wrong. But in Galilee, Jesus worked where Judaism touched paganism, where the nation intersected with the nations, and where light met darkness. This choice of venue demonstrates God's amazing initiative towards those who have never been considered. God's amazing initiative towards those who had never been considered. Jesus' choice of Galilee as home base, yet another tangible example of the gospel itself. Another example of his surprising and radically inclusive love. Galilee is the physical manifestation of the spiritual reality that out of love God came to us to be with us in our sin and darkness, to bring us light and salvation. There will be no more gloom for those who are in distress. In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, but in the future, he will honor Galilee of the nations. By the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, the people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. Thinking back through that quote about Galilee, I just I can't help but think about Davis. Some of those words. Pagan, a little weird, less biblically pure, a bit outside the norm, an intersection of the nations. This is our dream, our mission, our purpose. To be a light, a light of inclusion, a light of love, even a light that's a little bit weird, but a light that points to the abundant life available 
in Jesus. And yes, there will be tests. It will be difficult. But the hard is what makes it great. And the hard is what produces integrity and soundness and safety. Creates a structure where together we can enjoy the gift of abundant eternal life that we have in Jesus. Let's pray. Father, as we wrap up Advent and get ready to celebrate Christmas in the next couple of days, this is a, a strange Advent text that we've considered this morning, and yet it's a, such a great reminder that the invitation into your kingdom, into this abundant eternal life, is not an invitation to an easy life or a life free of challenges or difficulties, that in fact there will be difficult moments, there will be even testing that we have to move through. And yet the good news for us is that Jesus has already been through that test, he's passed that test, he's suffered through that test, and as a result can be with us, suffer with us, give us strength in the midst of that. Father, I pray for those here this morning who are in the midst of that. They feel like they are in this test, facing some sort of season of temptation right now. God, I pray that you would meet them there, that you would give them strength, that you would remind them of their identity, that it is not found in this thing. It is not found in anywhere else other than in the one who looks over them and says, my beloved son and daughter. Remind them that it's through Jesus, this baby who came to us, 2,000 years ago who lived among us who, who faced trials and temptations who died in our place that we can have life that we can have life eternal that we can have life full in the here and now as well and God we also just ask this morning as we reflect on uh, the journey that we've been in through Matthew so far, that we do a little bit of self-examination and think about the things that we do allow to take your place, that we allow to become idols, wedges in relationship between us, things that get us distracted from your mission. Help us to name those things. And once again, step into the invitation to find our identity rooted and grounded in you and your love for us. Thank you that you have loved us so much that you would send Jesus to be with us, to die in our place, that we may have life and relationship with you forevermore. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.